Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues of Dermatology. My name is Dr. Jules Lipoff. I'm a dermatologist in Philadelphia, uh, an adjunct associate professor at Temple and also in practice. And today I have two very special guests who are going to talk to us about the guidelines for care of psoriasis, specifically around non-biologics and complementary alternative medicines, severity of measures, quality improvement initiatives, a lot of important stuff. So let me welcome our two guests, Dr. Tina Butani and Dr. Elizabeth Prater. Dr. Butani is an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and is co-director of the Psoriasis Treatment Center. And Dr. Prater is in private practice at Healthy Skin Dermatology of Oklahoma. Thanks to both of you for joining me today. For having us. So I try to be up on guidelines and read up and know all the things I'm supposed to know as a clinical practicing dermatologist. I saw that there are these guidelines that were recently updated, papers put out in the JAD, and it seems like a lot of the guidelines were last updated around 2009 or around there. So I'm hoping that maybe either of you can start us off with telling me, what are the headlines here? What are the most important changes and updates given the many years that have passed? I think we had a lot of interesting updates as the years have passed in regards to a few specific areas regarding the systemic treatments. Obviously, we have the addition of a premolas to our treatment methodologies, and I think we had some interesting insights on how to monitor some of the medications that maybe we're a little more comfortable with, but some things might be different now from what we did a decade ago. Yeah, and I think just trying to give practicing dermatologists some more practical guideline for the treatment of psoriasis. We know, for example, even though in the labels for topical steroids, they might only be tested for two to four weeks, that in reality, we're really using them for longer for patients with a chronic disease. So I think we try to focus on those type of things in the guidelines to make it more realistic and usable for the practicing dermatologist. Well, yeah, certainly practical tips, practical guidelines, there's always what's done in studies and what the real world is like, right? right? So are there any, maybe I'll hone in on that, Dr. Bhutani, are there any specific changes that you would point to as far as practical guidance that you saw in the guidelines? Yeah, I think, for example, for talking about topical corticosteroids, for example, there was some information added about that the use of topical corticosteroids for longer than the two to four weeks as per label could be safe and is safe if done under careful supervision. And I think there's a lot of data out there to show that there are very, very few cases of negative adverse events from the use of topical steroids. And if there are, there are usually patients who are using, you know, inordinate amounts of super potent topical steroids for really, really long periods of time. So for the most part, as long as our patients are educated by us and use these medications appropriately, we don't usually run into problems, even in the long term. And maybe Dr. Prater, you can speak to what are the biggest changes as far as systemic medications? Now, this is limited to non-biologics, right, in the part we're talking about today. But obviously, there's a lot in the biologic, TNF, IL-17, et cetera, realm. But as far as systemic agents, you mentioned a premolast. Is that the main focus, or are there other systemics we should pay attention to in the new guidelines? 
You know, at the time where the guidelines were written, that was probably the biggest addition there. I think there's a little bit of discussion about early JAK inhibitors, but not some of the ones that we're expecting to see come to market or just kind of entered the market recently. So I think that would be the main thing as something that's really a new agent compared to the last published guideline. I think one of the biggest changes we saw and one of the hardest things to discuss was monitoring of methotrexate. And probably the biggest change there was removal of kind of a hard line for liver biopsy. And so that's helpful and can be reviewed in the guidelines. There's some suggestions of alternative testing that might be considered. Do you think that the overall trend, my perception is that dermatologists are using some of these older therapies like methotrexate, cyclosporin, et cetera, less, especially when we have options like apremolast or what, what do you think the average dermatologist is doing? Well, I know I'm definitely using less of it, but I'm certainly still using them for other conditions. Occasionally for psoriasis, I think it's really important to be familiar with these medicines. I think cyclosporin in particular can be a really useful tool acutely and it's accessible too. So I think it behooves young dermatologists to be comfortable with this, but at the same time, I do enjoy not having to use methotrexate initially only to maybe feel like I have to transition to something else. I think those medicines are, you know, they have less favorable side effect profiles. Yeah, I would totally agree. My one caveat would be that sometimes we're forced to use some of these medications by insurance companies. And so oftentimes patients will have had to have tried and failed methotrexate before they can use other systemic therapies. So even though I would like to use much less of these medications, we probably are still using some of them. So maybe I'll ask each of you, maybe starting with you, Dr. Prater, how has your therapeutic ladder for psoriasis changed? And how do you think about incorporating these different therapies that you cover differently over time? It's definitely changed a lot. I'm somebody who really likes to kind of briefly go over a lot of the different options with my patients and try to make it really digestible in terms of perceived efficacy for skin and joints and side effects. And the list to try to do that in a reasonable amount of time has definitely become more challenging, but that's wonderful. It's fantastic to have options. So I'm really enjoying this time compared to maybe what we had 10, 15 years ago. But yeah, I think these medicines are still relevant. They still enter the discussion, especially for some specific scenarios. I still use a fair amount of psoriatine, for example, in Palmer planter disease, maybe even in conjunction with something else. And so I think they have a place, but they certainly added an extra minute or two to kind of the breakdown of options for each individual patient. Dr. Patani, would you comment on any changes you've had over time? Yeah, I would totally, just like Dr. Prater, I use shared decision-making with the patient and I like to kind of fill out options. And sometimes I'm surprised, whereas, you know, patients might have really severe disease, but might have hesitancy to use systemic agents and things of that sort. So I think it's important to get the perspective of the patient, what they're comfortable with before, you know, deciding what what's best for them. But I agree, it's become a little bit of less of a ladder <laughs> in a sense, in that when patients come in with more moderate to severe disease, I'm less likely to, let's say, you know, let's do some topicals and bring you back and see how you're doing. I'm having the conversations right off the bat about potential systemic 
therapy, phototherapy, biologics, things of that sort, at the same time while prescribing the topicals. So it's kind of jumping up the ladder a little bit faster these days. So it sounds like both of you are saying that there's a growing comfort with an increasing array of options and maybe a, a comfort or sense that these systemic therapies are, are safer. And so that's making you more comfortable starting them sooner. Yeah, and I think the more we learn about other comorbidities like psoriatic arthritis and medical comorbidities that we know that psoriasis patients have like cardiovascular disease and diabetes, it's kind of giving us, I guess, more support in starting systemic therapy sooner as well. So kind of shifting that risk benefit ratio. Definitely. Would either of you want to comment on what are some common misconceptions that you find that fellow dermatologists might have about some of these therapies, maybe myths or ideas that you were specifically looking to put to rest or address in your guidelines? I think one of the main goals of the guidelines is to be able to be used as a reference so that no one therapy feels inaccessible. And hopefully we've achieved that. And it's nice to have some of the data within the guidelines. Nobody's going to read these leisurely on a Sunday afternoon, but you know, hopefully you can flip back and, and kind of get a sense of expectations as uh, some of the specific data is in there. In the guidelines, I think one of the things we tried to do as well is to include as much as we could about combination therapy, because we definitely have some patients that are going to need more than one treatment modality. And that might be something that we're limited by the number of studies that we have, but there's more information on combination therapy and head-to-head therapy as well. So maybe to ask, follow up on that, you know, I certainly have used things like methotrexate in combination with TNF specifically like infliximab. Are there specific combinations that you think dermatologists should become familiar with or comfortable with that you'd want to highlight? I mean, I'm probably a little more liberal with my combinations when I have to be in terms of the data that we went through. I think one of the biggest things is just, especially for people who may be just starting their practice, that topical therapy really can be combined with any systemic treatment. You don't have to go one way or the other. And in all actuality, that's probably not going to be the case for the vast majority of patients. So I think that might be one that could really be highlighted. I think phototherapy is another one we often combine with patients with biologics or even patients with on other systemic treatments. We often add on phototherapy or use phototherapy initially to help them get, you know, jumpstart their disease improvement. And then like methotrexate, I've also used a premolas in combo with biologics as well. Oftentimes when patients have both psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis or just really recalcitrant disease. Mm -hmm. One thing I would add is sometimes I find that certain patients only have a few plaques that are really bothersome or persistent. And maybe I can even avoid certain systemics by just using ILK. And that can knock out a lesion for a long time, or that plus a premolast is enough if they're not wanting to have any immunosuppression, right? So I think there are a lot of interesting ways that we all practice differently, but always looking to you all as experts in this particular area. As far as speaking of like immunosuppression and other things, obviously we're not talking about the biologic as much today. Are there specific adverse events and risks that we need to to be concerned about? We're talking about how safe some of these therapies are, but are there risks that we do need to be paying attention to or even 
more than we generally are? I mean, I think within, you know, since we're focusing a little bit recently on kind of the non-biologic traditional systemics, the risk for birth defects on psoriatine really can't be underestimated there. So really patient selection there is really important. I think most people are comfortable and familiar with that, but I would certainly say that's in my mind, the biggest limitation there. Yeah. And I think drug-drug interactions comes up quite a bit, especially in some of our patients who have a lot of other medical issues or medical problems who might be on other medications. So that obviously comes up a little bit more with the non-biologics. With the biologics, we don't have to worry about that as much. So in these guidelines, one thing that uh, I'm not as used to is seeing discussion of alternative medicines or a focus on a lot of the topicals. Can anyone speak to why this extra focus or how often patients are really using all of these? I think it was an interesting, it was an interesting thing to go through. I think the real focus was in reality, patients are using alternative medication with or without the seek of a doctor. And they're probably using it, whether they tell you or not, in some capacity to treat a lot of their skin diseases. And so we really wanted to make an attempt to capture as much literature and data that we could regarding that. I think one of the biggest challenges is, is that those non-traditional therapies don't have large randomized clinical control trials. And so when you're making a guideline, that's really a huge part of that level of evidence has to be there to make the recommendation. So we tried our best to go through things, but we weren't able to make some of the same recommendations that we would be able to make with something a little more traditional. Yeah, I think one of the major goals was to make these guidelines really patient-centric. And so again, just realizing what patients are actually doing in the real world and bringing in as much data, as Dr. Prater just said, as is possible with those therapies was was really important. Well, for instance, I always learned about the Geckerman regimen, for instance, right? And yet I personally have never done it. And I, I wonder like how common are some of those old school regimens or old school topicals still in common practice? Well, we still do Geckerman at UCSF, but you're right that they're not as common. But I think a lot of the things that were discussed in the complementary section were, were also things like acupuncture and Chinese herbs and things of that sort. And these are things that I think, again, patients wanting to just feel some control over the disease, oftentimes go on the internet or talk to other patients or talk to family members even and get recommendations for these type of therapies and and might be giving them a try. And so I think that that was, um, you know, part of, again, why we included some of those things in the guidelines. And it's, it's kind of interesting. We weren't really able to make strong recommendations, but there were some sections where maybe something that you'd think would work out didn't at least. And so if you really peruse things, I think uh, zinc therapy ended up not being helpful at all and was looked at a little bit versus, you know, you know, I think a lot of us know and don't understand why systemic vitamin D is not helpful if topical vitamin D is. But again, there are some little sections that talk about things like that. So at least at the very least, if somebody's interested in using one of those alternative therapies, you could kind of take a look and there are a few trials that confirm that certain things don't work. So beyond the discussion of topical therapies and the non-biologics, there's also some discussion about psoriasis severity indices, right? 
Mm -hmm. So I wonder if, I'm not sure which of you would prefer to talk about this, but what do you think the average practicing dermatologist should know? How important are which ones are most important beyond just seeking approval from insurance companies? <laughs> yeah, I think the most common ones that you see in clinical trials, for example, like the POSI, which is the psoriasis area and severity index, IGA score, which is the investigator's global assessment. You're right in that oftentimes in a busy practicing clinical dermatologist might not be doing these type of measures. These are purely kind of clinical trials measures. That being said, it is important to know what they are and what they measure because oftentimes insurance companies might ask you to do these quick calculations in order to justify treating disease. The one I like the most and that's easiest for me is the body surface area. So I oftentimes will include a body surface area in my clinical notes because I think that's quick and easy. You know, we always talk about one handprint versus patient handprint being 1% psoriasis. And so kind of doing that quick measurement, eyeballing it is sometimes easy to do. I think a simple BSA makes a huge difference in how you manage somebody over time. Actually, <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure I'd know how to do that without at least knowing, oh, where were they when they started with me a few years ago? Where were they on, you know, one treatment and where are they now? You know, it's, it makes it a lot more concrete than just kind of meandering through things. And it doesn't take very long. Yeah, totally. So you mentioned earlier that you don't necessarily expect everyone uh, listening to pull up the, the CME articles jointly from the AAD and the National Psoriasis Foundation and read them on their leisurely Sunday afternoons. But what would you say is the easiest way to access this information? Tell us about where can listeners find the series and this information so they can be educating themselves? All of the psoriasis clinical guidelines are posted on the AAD website under the psoriasis clinical guidelines, and they're all listed out there as well as a, a summary of what's in the guidelines. So if you don't want to read the entire thing, you can kind of look at the bullet points and get the main takeaways there. Yes. And, you know, I think you can find them easily on the website. You can search. They're all published in the JAD and easily searchable. Hopefully some of these new presentations will help make some, you know, just another modality to reach that information if you need it. Great. So you hear that everyone It's easily findable on the website. There's even Cliff's notes for you made <laughs> super easy. So I really appreciate both of your time. I know you're both very busy. I want to sort of wrap up by asking each of you to highlight what you think the key takeaways to create take-home messages, key practice points that you'd like to leave with our listeners. Why don't we start with you, Dr. Prater? I think the key takeaway points for specifically the non-biologic systemic treatment is these treatments are still a part of our, our practice. Our patients can still benefit from them. We have good resources. If you feel out of practice or maybe you didn't get enough practice if you're a little bit newer to dermatology. And so these guidelines can be a good resource for how to prescribe, what to expect in terms of side effects and how to counsel patients. Yeah, and I think that it's important to remember that there's not an algorithm in treating psoriasis. There's lots of right ways to do things. So don't be afraid to try different options and work with your patients to come up with a plan that works for them. Well, I think that was all very helpful and really just 
a preview of all of the wonderful information that you all have assembled and that I know I can learn a lot from. So I want to thank you both, Dr. Elizabeth Prater and Dr. Tina Butani, for your time and spending time explaining the guidelines. And until the next Dialogues of Dermatology, this is Dr. Jules Lipoff. Thank you all very much for listening. Thank you. Thanks. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.